This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Melbourne's got a lot of notable architecture, including new stuff like Fed Square, which I hear has already been put up for heritage listing. Uh, but there's some notable architecture in the suburbs too. And this morning, we're going to learn about the life and work of architect Charles Heath. He was a surveyor and a Moreland resident whose designs include the Faulkner Memorial Park and the Kobeg Town Hall. He died in 1948, but Associate Professor... David Nichols from the University of Melbourne hasn't forgotten him. He's about to do a talk this coming Thursday at the Coburg Library all about Charles Heath's life and the significance of his work. And it's great to have you at Triple R, Dave, as always. Great to be here, Carlia. Hi. Hi, Dylan. Hello. Um, tell us who Charles Heath was. I just did a well, little bit of an intro. Away, wouldn't it? I mean, I think you've already said oh, too much. Oh, sorry. We actually have to <laughs> go on Thursday. No, I actually yeah. already thought you'd done the talk, but yeah, no, yeah, it's no, coming up this no. Thursday at the Kobeg no, Library. I panicked when you, when you said that. And <laughs> I thought maybe there was, maybe I missed, uh, you know, a bit late for my own funeral. Um, <laughs> which is appropriate talking about the Faulkner Memorial Park. This sorry. is like a dry run for you then. Uh, how, a little bit, yes, but um, yes, I haven't quite, um, I haven't quite finished what I'm, what I'm going to say. I'm still doing the the work. He's but, not uh, much on, you know. You, you, I googled him, and he's not really there that no, much. No, he's not really there. He, oddly enough, he's slightly overshadowed, I think, by his son Frank, or one of his sons, Frank, who was uh, a notable um, architect and a very prominent individual in Melbourne's uh, development, particularly in planning in the in the 40s and 50s. Uh, but um, but Charles was most definitely, uh, you know, very well. He's very well represented by, you know, in the built environment in the the sort of um, in the city of Moreland, I suppose you'd say, uh, with Faulkner Memorial Park, as you said, which was known for a long time as New Melbourne General Cemetery, and um, Coburg Town Hall is is one of his as well. They're the big things. He did quite a lot of houses uh, as well, many of which no longer exist. Uh, but he and uh, church buildings and so on. He did a lot of buildings at the actual um, Faulkner Cemetery itself as well. So he was he was active there for over forty years. So. And, and I mean, it's sort of interesting as well that he lived in that area and did a lot of his work in that area as well. Because architects these days, even residential architects, will do work all over the country and all over the world. Some of them. Yeah. This idea that geographic closeness, I think, is quite interesting. Well, that is true. He did. He was also he did quite a lot of work in Geraldton in the late nineteenth century as well. So he went over to WA because there was precisely no work for architects or really anybody in um, Melbourne in the late, very late nineteenth century. So he saw the writing on the wall and he uh, relocated to the other side of the country. Uh, and he was he did. That's where he got a lot of his experience. A kind of experience that I think stood him in good stead when he applied to be the the designer and the sort of supervisor of the cemetery, which is, which as I say, was like kind of his, one of his jobs for, for the rest of his life. He got that job when he was 37 at the, you know, I think 1904 or something like that. And, um, and then he, um, he kept that going, uh, you know, up until his death. So, um, so the, the Geraldton work was a lot of sort of public buildings and also surveying and so on. So he was kind of, he could say in his application letter, you know, I have this extensive experience. Um, but yes, he didn't, he didn't, you know, well, he didn't jet around. Uh, too bad if he wanted to do that. I don't think there was much opportunity to do such a thing at the, the beginning of the last century. Is there a particular style that, that characterizes Charles Heath? I mean, people might know the, the Coburg, uh, that the town hall is having that kind of 
bulb sort of exactly. structure. Is yeah. that is that kind of a classic sort of Heath look, or was he referring to great, to great other question, Dylan. styles at that time? He, uh, when you look at his the buildings that he did at Faulkner, I mean he. He's he is a bit he's a little bit sort of arts and craftsy in a way and you know in some ways you can see connections to Federation architecture and so on in that um, in that work. I mean I think he he also and these are things that never got built but he also um, put in a lot of designs for um, sort of what would you call them kind of grand almost uh, not quite art, art nouveau but. I mean, I think of them as kind of city beautiful style designs for, for instance, a, uh, a major, um, sort of gateway, um, landscaped open square that would be at the, um, Flemington Road end of, of Sydney Road or, uh, Royal Parade. So he was, you know, um, he was looking at, at making this a kind of a grand entrance way to Melbourne. Uh, so he was, he was in that, into that kind of noble, um, but, but for the time, quite modern. He wasn't. He wasn't necessarily looking back to to any previous styles, um, except in that kind of uh, that very idea that you could you could you could create a kind of a grandiose um, and um, uh, excitingly noble kind of um, insp- inspirational architecture. You know, perhaps perhaps just out in those kinds of in major roadways and and things like that. He did a similar kind of thing for the, he, he did a kind of design for the entranceway to Faulkner Cemetery, which uh, also was not built. Uh, so he's he's into that kind of stuff. But when it when it came to domestic architecture, yeah, he's more in that kind of what we now think of as federation, but you know, sort of um, arts and craftsy kind of um, maybe two story, quite big big houses sometimes, uh, but you know, inner city, Coburg kind of houses. Mm. Yeah. And so, so, I mean, working in that period, so he died in 1948. Mm. So he sounds like he was working right across the first and second world war periods. Was there much money around then for architecture? There was a lot of money in in the interwar period in the 1920s. That's, uh, there was, you know, and then there was of course a crash at the end of that decade. Um, So it's boom and bust. I mean, he was, but he was doing well because he always had his wages uh, at the cemetery to, to fall back on and he lived on the cemetery grounds until uh, around the time of if i remember rightly the the early 1920s and then he then he built a, a house in the grove in Coburg and and moved there with his his reasonably large family i think about five kids is he back at um faulkner now is he back oh my god that's a good question you need Cara. to go, you have I to know. research this before thursday i had a quick oh. look to see if he was this morning i couldn't see oh, his name you? but it wasn't i wasn't on a particular look reliable you, Mr. Researcher. I, I had a look can yeah. i say something about <laughs> charles he's um he was he was mr uh mr cremation he was a cremation uh or maybe he's been scattered somewhere else he may have been scattered somewhere because so he is was, this is probably rude to speculate is it? No. Uh, it's 70 years ago. Okay, I think, it's all right. I think there's a there's a kind of cut-off point where it's no longer <laughs> rude to speculate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, so he was he was a big cremation advocate at a time when cremation was somewhat um, controversial and you know a new technology that people weren't necessarily. It was also seen, um, you know, the the only real cremations uh, in the 19th century. You didn't you didn't nobody knew they were going to turn on Triple R this morning and hear about cremation, did they? Um, the history of in Australia, um, the only cremations that were really happening were uh, people for you know religious sort of you know non non Anglo background people would would actually hold um, kind of what would you call it kind of uh, secret private cremations. For religious purposes, in in uh, in locations where where they shouldn't have done it, um, so by the but by the early part of the twentieth century, it starts to become recognised as a as a 
as a thing um, and as a as an option and still controversial of course but uh, people like Heath are you know going full bore and and Faulkner Cemetery has uh, Melbourne's uh, first I think Melbourne's first crematorium or one of the early ones anyway and he's he's pushing for it very early in the piece was, mm. was that coming from a, a religious perspective or one of um, I guess do you know what I think it's in large part anyway it comes from a hygiene perspective uh, and you know, just think about the, you know, there's there's issues of land use when it comes to you know burying bodies. It's kind of you know that takes up takes up a lot of space in a in a growing city. The people of Melbourne have had to push their, you know, they they the Melbourne General Cemetery f- filled up uh, it, at the end of the 19th century, and they had to be you know new. Um, New places had to be identified, and it was the city was growing, and they were like, "Well, you know, let's let's find some alternative solutions for for people who don't mind if they don't actually have a physical grave to go and visit." And the rail line was used for that. I understand for, for transporting bodies to. to oh, exactly. Cemetery. I mean, the the Faulkner, the railway line to Faulkner had been built, and then it had been closed because there was no uh, there was no nobody lived there. Like, um, apparently, I've been reading. Um, uh, Charles's grandson um, Blythe Johnson wrote has written a, a memoir or a, a biography of his grandfather. Um, hasn't been published yet, but I've been reading from it. And according to Blythe, um, I- even in the you know let's say hundred years ago, there was about thirty people living in Faulkner. So there was no particular reason. You know, there was you know by that time a hundred years ago there were quite a lot of dead people, but not many living people. And um, so there was no particular reason to take the train there until you have that kind of a you know that kind of a public that kind of a public place that people might want to visit um, perhaps even on a regular basis and also they'd run uh, initially they ran one train a day for uh, you know to take coffins to the to the cemetery we're speaking um with dave nichols about architect and surveyor charles heath who's been dead for about 70 years but has been significant in his work in the moorland area around coburg uh, uh you know through his I don't know, the latter part of his career. Dave? Do you know what, Kalia? I think it's 70 years ago today that he died. There you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Woo-woo. Mm-hmm. Sorry, uh, what was the question? I'm no, sorry. I haven't asked one yet. Oh, okay. You interrupted <laughs> my recap of where yeah. we're at. All right. um, but I'll... I am interested in what it, what it is about Charles Heath that you're interested in. I think that Heath, well, he's, he's, he's interested, you know, I mean, I'm a planning historian. That's really, that's what I do. And Heath, um, he, he is a, he's a surveyor. He did... When you look at the, I, I would urge everybody listening to have a look at the plan of the uh, uh, Faulkner Cemetery. It's a really interesting plan. It's a it's a beautiful example of uh, early twentieth century. And once again, I'll use that term, which I know is a little bit arcane, but city city beautiful planning. Um, he's inspired in some ways by you know the 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 great uh, city plans of late nineteenth century Europe, and I know many people are going to think that's slightly ridiculous when applied to Faulkner Cemetery, but it is actually a really beautiful place, and I think it's There's lots of eucalypts in there. I mean, they're oh, beautiful trees. He there. did that. He's he uh, that's part of his initial plan. Is it's, it's got to be Australian trees. He does put in a few palm trees, but um, but otherwise it's um, he says Australian trees, please for this for this place, and he um, you know he landscapes it extensively. And he, he creates, uh, you know, a very functional, but very, 
you know, very attractive in many ways uh, design. And it's seg- I mean, there's, I've been to lots of cemeteries. I, I do like to walk through them and different when I'm travelling and, and yeah. so forth. And uh, and the Faulkner Cemetery I know well, mainly because I've been to lots of funerals there. But, mm. but it is sort of segmented. You've got different areas for different... Um, people and different backgrounds and that sort of thing but not so much as other places in the world that i've been it's much more mixed up right then yeah. um so i mean maybe i don't know if that was his doing as well uh, i'm not sure if that was his doing um that seemed to a bit that was the way it was from the beginning it's really interesting to me that the very the very first or maybe not the very first but one of the first um buildings that was was put there in like 1910 or something was a mohammedan chapel so that's you know really early on in the piece there's there's and there's a there's a um, a few other buildings, small buildings for specific religious persuasions uh, around and about that he designs. They're, I mean, they're they're tiny, they're functional, they're not they're, they're nothing that you're going to um, you know jump for joy over. But they're they're interesting for the time and and they give us a good social history of the of the place and of Melbourne, I guess. And so, as as an architect and a surveyor, was he actually supervising? kind of the, the running of the cemetery yeah, and the burials was. and cremations and that sort of thing. Was it, that, I mean, for, for architects working in that era, was that a, did they need to supplement income in these sorts of ways well, through working at cemeteries or, or something else? Uh, I've always, I, I don't want to say struggled, but I've always found it peculiar, as as you do, that he he had this, he was obviously, he was a working architect and he did a lot of work in the area. Um, his, his grandson's... Um, Biography suggests. Did I call it an autobiography before? Anyway, his biogra- his grandson's biography of him um, suggests that he um, he he got pretty bored um, in the in the first you know fifteen years of the of the twentieth century because he had that job, but he didn't have much to do. So he entered a lot of competitions and so on. He entered a competition to design the Adelaide Showgrounds, things like that, and won it. Um, and also at Essendon. Um, uh, recreation reserve things like that so he was entering competitions and and so on uh but he, i think that he probably you know having that work which was not just you know it was administrative mm. but it was also um it was also like well we need a new building here we need some we need some you know we need to landscape here that kind of stuff so he was kind of uh building the place uh, as he went but i don't think he had necessarily a, a predilection for cemeteries um, but and I don't think that he really necessarily had uh, a strong background in administration. But uh, he certainly made the place his own in that regard for four decades. Wow. Well, um, if you want to hear more about Charles Heath, um, Associate Professor Dave Nichols is going to be speaking about uh, his work and his life. When is it, Dylan? It is Thursday, August 9, um, and it's at the Coburg Library Meeting Room. Entry is via Victoria Street Mall, not the library, I understand, so make sure you, you find the right entrance It's right there. next to the library. That's right, yeah. yeah. And um, and light refreshments will be provided as well, and it's um, it's free, I understand. you just got to register online, which you can do via um, the Moreland City Council website. And you can um, catch up with Dave. You can. Please catch up with me. Enjoy. Just try. Right in front of us, we have a beautiful book about um, an extraordinary bird. It's called The Eastern Curlew. It's written by Harry Sadler, and it's an eight-chapter book about, uh, I suppose that's the largest of the wading birds that breeds in Siberia in the summertime there, migrates annually all the way to Australia, including to Port Phillip Bay, for our summer, stopping off uh, in East Asia along the way. Um Harry Sadler's book is called Simply the Eastern Curlew and he's right here with us to talk about it and it's really great to have you here and thank you for such a beautiful book. Oh, thank you. It's really great to be here. And it's um, nice 
you know, handhold size and, yeah. you know, really kind of quick to read as well. But you a can, really You can take it out bird watching. You can you, actually. <laughs> it fits in a backpack pretty well, I reckon. Um, but you, you've travelled from Australia to China and South Korea and Russia to see the Eastern Curlew in all its different feeding grounds. Um, but before we get to that bigger story, can you tell us when you first learnt and got interested in this particular bird? Sure. <coughs> Sorry. Um, so I first got interested in bird watching when I was about 12 years old, I guess. Uh, my parents bought a property from, from some friends on the far south coast of New South Wales and it was in the forest about 45 minutes inland from the coast uh, near Bega and it was just full of bird life um, and my dad, who in a previous life was a botanist, he started keeping a list or cataloguing all the plant species on the property so I'd been you know, a child and impressionable I started doing the same thing I guess with the birds I started keeping a list of the birds that were on the property uh, and I used my parents old really very outdated um, bird field guide it was from the 60s and half of it was in black and white and the illustrations weren't that good uh, so I saw one bird in particular uh, flitting in and out of the garden as a honey eater and I couldn't identify it and being only you know, 11 or 12 years old and full of you know hubris as children are I thought oh, maybe I've discovered a new species that no one's ever seen before so I went um, when we were back in, in Canberra which is where I grew up um, after that weekend I went with my pocket money and bought my first ever field guide to the birds of Australia and I subsequently found out that this beautiful bird was in a honey eater called an eastern spinebill um but then flicking through this field guide which had all the birds in australia which is you know, nearly a thousand birds in, in australia um illustrated in it beautifully and described uh suddenly this whole continent of birds outside my very narrow experience opened up and i remember in particular flicking through the the migratory shorebirds, also called waders, and there is page after page after page of them because we get over 30 species of them in Australia. And I turned one page and just looming over the whole rest of the of the illustration plate was this huge one with an extraordinarily long curved bill and it was an eastern curlew. Uh, and I'd never seen an illustration of them before. I grew up, like I said, in Canberra, in inland, so they, they only, they're very coastal, so... I had no chance of seeing one in Canberra. Um, and I just became fascinated by it, partly because, partly because of the extraordinary lifestyle of flying between Siberia and Australia twice a year. Uh, and when you're, when you're a kid, I think particularly you're sort of interested in the world and like other countries and this bird that flies such a long distance sort of encapsulates that. Uh, but also partly just because it was such an astonishing looking bird. It had this huge long bill. I always compare it to a giraffe. A giraffe has you know, an extravagantly long neck and you see that and you think, well, that's like, that's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. Like, how did that even happen? Evolutionary terms. Um, and Eastern Curlew's bill, it's about five times the length of its head and it's 
it's sort of the giraffe's bill, <laughs> sorry, the giraffe's neck of the of the bird world. <laughs> yeah, yeah th- I mean, they're, they're extraordinary birds for I mean the distances they cover and yeah. and, and how they I guess find that their nesting place and and their um, whether it's a, the staging post around kind of China, Korea, or mm-hmm. um, onwards to Serbia or Australia. Do we know how birds do that? I mean, there's so much we we don't still understand about uh, about bird life and so on. But but how do they find such specific areas to to nest and, and stay for a while? Uh, so there's been a lot of studies over the last several decades into how birds navigate. And one thing that we do know now is that they can sense the Earth's magnetic fields and use that like you no, know, almost like a GPS to sort of align themselves so they can follow the Earth's magnetic fields and navigate that way. In terms of finding the sites, uh, the migration is so, so energy intensive. They fly for days on end over thousands of kilometres in a single flight. Um, So they're they're not stopping off along the way, generally speaking. And because of that, they, when they land, they need to feed voraciously. So feeding is very, very important um, because they land and they're starving, basically. So because of that, they're very, very, very site faithful. They go to the same places every year, year after year after year. Um, they know where the food is. They know where the, where they can find what they need, and they'll and they'll fly right there. Um, the <coughs> excuse me. The migration route seems to be innate to some extent, in that the chicks uh, will migrate by themselves without without the adults that following showing them the way when they're only six weeks old wow so the, so the chicks up in up in the arctic up in siberia um as soon as they hatch they can look after themselves and run around and feed themselves the adults will hang around for a little while not very long um just to make sure they're okay and then not doing what shorebird chicks should do and feeding themselves and then the adults will take off on their migration back to australia good luck the chicks there off the you chick- go kids <laughs> exactly so and so we we know now that the the eastern curlew has been you know unfortunately stepped up on the uh, up to the endangered mm-hmm. uh, on the endangered list. And so when you describe that that they are relying on these feeding grounds, obviously we need the whole world yeah. to be conscious that these birds are travelling between our different yeah. you know different land masses and needing because they don't they don't float on water they need to be standing in ground no and that's right they're, they're not water birds so they can't swim and they fly over no they'll fly five or six thousand kilometers at a go often over an open ocean and so if they get exhausted and they crash into the water that's it and they're done for. <laughs> so, so we haven't yeah. got a great record here in Australia when it comes to no. protecting habitat for for migratory species. But you go and you travel. You go to China. You go to South Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about there? Is there a consciousness about uh, feeding grounds for these kinds of species there as well? Yeah, there seems to be a growing consciousness there, both among people and in government circles as well, um, which is great. There's been a lot of hard work done in raising consciousness by NGOs such as the East Asian Australasian Flyway Partnership, which is a bit of a mouthful, but they're located in Incheon in Korea. So the migration route is called... So migration routes, bird migration routes, uh, called flyways, and there are eight or nine of them around the world, um, and Australia is in one called the East Asian Australasian Flyway. Um, the main critical place on the migration route is the Yellow Sea between China and Korea um, and that 
historically has had a huge amount of habitat loss in it. Um, I always kind of catch myself with my language because we talk about things like habitat loss and population decline, and they're very no, there's loss and decline. They're very very passive words, and they sort of like and makes it seem like oh, this sad terrible thing is just happening, and we're powerless to do anything about it. It's just you know they make it seem like just a natural trend, but um, they're happening because we're destroying habitat. <laughs> habitat <laughs> destruction. Exactly, exactly. The, um, the habitat destruction and the population, you know. Eastern curlews and other birds are dying, basically, and it's because of human actions. So uh, there's been a huge amount of mudflat habitat loss in the Yellow Sea and throughout the flyway. Um, so they'll fly, particularly on the north of migration, which is when they go into the breeding grounds, they'll fly from Australia to the Yellow Sea nonstop. They'll feed on the Yellow Sea, um, on all the invertebrates found in the mudflats, and then they'll fly nonstop up to the up to the breeding grounds. So the Yellow Sea is a really important migratory stopover. And there are millions and millions and millions of people living there. Um, I was looking at World Bank data when I was researching this book, um, because that's the exciting, fun kind of thing you get to do when you're researching a book. Um, and according to the World Bank, the population density of South Korea has doubled in the last 50 years. Uh, and so... And there's a lot of manufacturing up in the OSC. They're manufacturing a lot of the time the goods that are being shipped out to countries like Australia that we're buying. You know, all the stuff that's made in China and uh, cars and white goods and stuff that are made in Korea. Um, and a lot of the time the manufacturing and you know, the farming for the local community and stuff happens on land that used to be mudflat. So they'll build a seawall, um, it'll block off the tides and they'll fill in the the area behind the behind the mud behind the seawall where there used to be mudflats and develop that. Um, so that's been a real issue and that's been the main cause of why the population of migratory shorebirds has declined. So the population of the eastern curlew has gone down 81.7% in the last 15, so in the last 30 years, and that's largely due to habitat loss. Um, fortunately, there's some evidence, as I, as I was saying, that this is starting to change. So a few months ago, the Chinese central government announced out of the blue, as they often do, um, a moratorium on coastal development, which is a huge thing, or it's potentially a huge thing. It's a bit too early now at the, at the moment to say what the impact of that will be, but it's very encouraging um and i was talking to some contacts of mine in china and korea and th their impression from going out and working with local communities and just being on 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 the ground is that there's a growing interest in environmental conservation environmental concern among people in those countries which is fantastic um and it's also an opportunity i think for us to Thing to look at what we're doing <laughs> in mm. Australia because these birds, although they don't breed in Australia, they breed way up in the Arctic. They spend most of their lives in Australia. They, they come here to get fat, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So they, they they come here to avoid the Arctic winter and they spend six months of the year in Australia in various places around the coast. And in Australia, now obviously our population is mostly coastal, but everyone also wants to live by the sea and everyone wants to live by a very particular vision of what we think the coast is which is you no know, beautiful golden sandy beaches and if you're rich enough somewhere to moor your boat i guess um and 
intertidal mudflats don't really fit into that vision. So we're not doing well with conserving mudflats here in Australia. Um, and in particular for the Eastern Curlew right now, there's a big struggle up in Queensland in Moreton Bay at Toondah Harbour, which is the subject of a development proposal, despite the fact that it's protected under the Ramsar Treaty as an international site of significance. So I know BirdLife Australia is, has a big campaign at the moment to try and prevent that that destruction and that development up there. Harry Sadler's our guest. We're talking all about his brand new book, The Eastern Curlew. And uh, so where are the, the curlews now? I mean, they, they come to our shores in the mudflats around mm-hmm. kind of Western Port Bay, I understand, in yep. sort of September, October. Is that the time? Yeah, so they're right? right now they're on their way back. So they've done all their breeding, or hopefully it's been a successful breeding season for them. Um, they're in the Arctic breeding in June and July, but only for a very brief period because the Arctic summer is very, very brief, but very productive. Um, so around late July, early August, they'll start migrating back down the down the flyway, and then they should arrive in Australia, they'll, they'll come in through the north, obviously, and then they sort of filter around through the coast. So the various places around the coast of Australia that are hotspots, um, then different species go to different locations for the eastern curlew, particularly for, for female eastern curlews. We're not quite sure why. Um, the coast of Victoria and Western Port Bay in particular is a really important site. Um, so, yeah, we should be seeing them turn up no, in, our, in our doorstep in the next few weeks, hopefully. <laughs> and so you've um, you've seen them. You went to Mud mm-hmm. Island in Port Phillip Bay, yep. and also to uh, French Island, yep. um, which is often forgotten island there in yeah, Western Port. Yeah, it's yeah. massive, but you it know is. it doesn't have a bridge like Phillip no, Island. Right. So it's actually you know you've got a boat link mm-hmm. there. So yeah. uh, and great mud flats yep. and lots of crabs at, at low tide and that yep. sort of thing. So this is where you can see them. Yep. Do people get excited? Like do, do local bird watchers get pretty excited when they start to turn up? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, migratory shorebirds are one of those birds that not everyone knows about. They're not as obvious and as charismatic as, you know, parrots and things that in a very colourful make a lot of noise. They're sort of brown and... Sort of well, they don't not, come next to your house, do No, they? exactly. They don't come next to your house and when the tide's out, they're sort of way out on the tide line feeding and they're just not here for half of the year. Um, but people who do find out about shorebirds get really excited about them and really <laughs> passionate about them. Yeah, and I, I mean, I've met a lot of those people over the years and they are very passionate people and do things like what you, what you did, which is mm. travel with them and see mm. them at different points. So if I see, I've seen eastern curlews in Victoria and, and they're very beautiful birds, but you describe in the book really, um, wonderfully, uh, how they come here, they get mm-hmm. they get sort of fat, yep. and then they fly, and then as you see them at different points of their migration, they actually physically look different. Yeah, yeah. So they before they migrate, they'll spend weeks and weeks and weeks just feeding whenever they can, and day or night when the tide's out and when all the little invertebrates that live under the under the mud are exposed, and they'll they'll be out there feeding. Um, and that's because they need to put on a huge amount of fat because that's their fuel for the migration um, because they fly for days on end just flapping constantly without stopping. That's very, very, very energy intensive. So before they migrate, when they're at, when they're at peak migration fitness, um, they'll have put on about 80% of their, of their usual body weight, their usual non-migrating body weight just in fat. So when you, when you see them, they look like inflated balloons. Like they, they were so round. When, they, when they're ready to migrate and you'd look at them and you think, well, that 
How could that bird <laughs> possibly that get off the ground? <laughs> <laughs> but that's actually when they're at peak migration fitness. So. And then obviously the fat gets gets burned off as um, gets consumed as they're flying, and so yeah, they get skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. And by the time they arrive here at the end of the migration, they're just gaunt and very hungry. Mm. It must have been tempting for you, given that the way that the bird's physical appearance changes and and that the way they looked is so kind of um, you know grand to to include pictures in this book. But there, I mean, there's an amazing um, image on the front cover and illustration. Mm-hmm. But apart from that, it's it's just words. And you write so well and, and evocatively that um, that the reader gets a really good sense of them. But but why did you decide? not to include pictures or photographs in the book? Uh, that was actually not my decision. <laughs> that was, um, <laughs> I thought it might have been. <laughs> that, was, um, that was actually the publisher's decision because mm. you know, obviously they're putting the money into printing and everything. So I think, yeah, I think they decided that um, there's a beautiful illustration on the front cover of the curlew and a few more dotted through sort of as chapter headings. And um, I think they decided probably just, you know, given that, We've all got the internet in our pocket and uh, photos of these birds are readily available. Right. Oh, you've popped my bubble because I thought, (laughs) because you've actually written a book called Reflections on Noticing Animals. Mm. I just thought, you know, this idea that, you know, rather than looking at everything through a lens, which is what a lot of us do now, you know, we see something amazing, whip out the phone and take a photo. (laughs) Oh, you know, and, but just sitting and noticing what they yeah. do. And I'm, clearly you've done that too, though, yeah. because you couldn't have written a book like this without noticing and really taking the time. Yeah, and there's a kind of... There's a pleasure, but also I think a kind of privilege as well, which I think I allude to in the book, um, about watching a wild animal just go about its business and being completely unaware of you and just being able to see you know, innate behaviour, um, particularly for a bird like the eastern curly, which has a reputation among people who study shorebirds as being particularly cautious and wary. Like if you get within a few hundred metres, they'll take off and go screaming down the beach. Um, and so particularly you know, looking through binoculars or through a scope from a, from a distance or from a hide where the, where the bird is not aware of you and just watching it go about its, its business is... Yeah, it's a real, it's a real pleasure and it's a real privilege. Um, and as you watch them, you sort of get a sense of, you know, there's, there's a, there's a mind in there, there's a consciousness of some kind because they're, they're real, you know, they really work hard to get their crabs and they really sort of, you can see them almost, almost puzzle it, puzzle it out how to approach getting their bill down a crab bar and sort of turning their head inside out. And, no, it's all not inside out, not upside down, but, <laughs> and sort of twisting their neck around and, um, then going and uh, washing the mud off their beak and stuff. There's a real sort of deliberateness to their action, which, you know, there's, I don't know, there's something going on in there, mm. <laughs> I think. Yeah. We've spoken a bit about um, the, the effects of industrialization and development on the kind of the decline of, of these birds over the years and um, obviously kind of climate change and that sort of thing, I imagine, impacts on, on the way that, that they live their lives and yeah. the availability of food and that sort of thing. Have there been many changes, I guess, in their migratory patterns or, or have they adapted and changed their behavior with what's happening in kind of the, the human environment or, or the way that the climate's changing? Yeah, so... Uh, this is only just starting to be studied, studied as far as I'm aware, um, specifically regarding climate change. I was at a talk um, put on by BirdLife Australia just a few weeks ago, actually, with a shorebird researcher. Um, and climate change for them is a, it poses a couple of problems. Um, one is that rising sea levels are obviously going to cover up the mudslats that they feed on. Um, but also, 
their their timing for arriving in the breeding grounds in Siberia is really sort of, you know, precision. So the, so the reason that they fly to the Arctic to breed is that the Arctic summer is brief but incredibly fertile. So for a few weeks of the year, you know, six or eight weeks of the year, there's 24-hour sunlight, all the ice and snow melts, forms huge swamps. The swamps get full of mosquitoes and other insects that are breeding. All the plants are putting out new growth and berries and things in the sunlight. So just for a brief window, everything is growing and there's lots and lots and lots of food. Um, and the insect uh, boom in particular is really important for migratory shorebirds. They time their arrival so that the chicks, when they hatch, will be hatching at peak no insect populations, so the chicks can just no, open their mouths and a meal will fly in kind of thing. Um, they hardly have to work for it. But the Arctic summer with climate change, um, so the Arctic is, or the, you know, the, the poles are, are warming faster than any other part of the, of the planet. Um, no, the planet is not warming at an even rate. So the Arctic summer due to climate change is now, I think the statistic is now, it's now two weeks earlier than it was 20 or 30 years ago and obviously that no, in, for when you're talking about such a brief season that's a huge thing so now when shorebirds get up to the Arctic and when their chicks hatch the insect boom has been and gone and there aren't as many around um, and this can have developmental problems for them and the chicks don't grow as big then they can't reach the same food resource on the mudflats um, and it's uh, potentially a disaster uh, but as, as I was saying right at the start, this, um, I went to this talk a few weeks ago and this researcher said that there have been studies on a couple of the smaller migratory shorebird species, redneck stints and ruddy turnstones, and there is some evidence that they're starting to adjust their migration and get up to the Arctic earlier. So, yeah, hopefully that trend will continue and hopefully it will spread across other other species because it's nice to, you know, when we're looking at this impending disaster of climate change, it's nice to have a little bit of yeah, hope. Yeah, and, and we are. I mean, these birds and and we as a planet are relying on these kind of human agreements like mm-hmm. Ramsar, yeah. the, those treaties to protect the significant um, mm-hmm. places in the world where these kinds of travelling yeah. species are, are relying on for their food to fuel them as they mm-hmm. go. Uh, are they still working? Is that system still you know, protecting these areas? Because I remember when it was first brought in and it was a revelation that we're yeah. going to start to try and keep certain landing points um, there yeah, for other yeah. species. I mean, I think trying to coordinate a conservation effort across a couple of dozen different countries and many different cultures and languages is always going to be a huge problem. Um, and there has unfortunately been a lot of no lip service to treaties like Ramsar, but then no, in places like Korea and in places like Australia with the Toondah Harbour proposed development I was talking about earlier and then just not following through. Um, fortunately, there are a lot of organisations, a lot of NGOs, like the Flyway Partnership and like BirdLife International that are you know, really working hard to to raise awareness of you know, shorebirds and other, other animals and also to make sure that people and governments 
stick to these agreements that they've signed to. Mm. So, yeah, it's a, it's a constant fight, but there are people who are doing really good work yeah. fighting it. Well, Sean Dooley, who um, Triple R listeners know very well, have, has called this book an outstanding story over a most remarkable bird, and I completely agree. Um, it's a very beautiful book put out through a firm. Um, it's called The Eastern Curly, The Extraordinary Life of a Migratory Bird. Harry Sadler is the author. Um, he's written very eclectic range of books, actually. I'm very looking forward to, I'm very much looking forward to seeing what you do next, Harry. Um, thank you for this. It's, yeah, it's gorgeous. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.